Well, let me ask you this. When I say God's word, what does that mean to you? Is it something you study? Is it just something you read? Is it something that changes your lives? Is it something to live by? Where does it come from? Uh, who brought it to us? How did we get this thing called God's word? All right, let me, let me uh, start out with this quote by uh, D.A. Carson. To our shame, we have hungered to be masters of the word much more than we have hungered to be mastered by it. Let me say that again. We, to our shame, we have hungered to be masters of the word much more than we have hungered to be mastered by it. It's like, it's like when you think about uh, the, the oil in your car. If you know everything about what the oil in your car does, you've, you've memorized the manual, uh, you've got it all down, you can describe to someone exactly what having oil, the right amount of oil, what kind of oil, what it does in your engine. If you can describe all that, but yet you never change your oil, you may be doing exactly what we do to God's word. Be becoming masters of it instead of letting it master our lives. Paul says this uh, about the Thessalonian church in, in four short verses that we're going to talk about today. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16. He says he's going to say this in these four short verses. He's going to give them an encouragement about, uh, about uh, their response to God's word, uh, the reason why he's encouraged by them, and also a warning. And he says this in 1 Thessalonians 13 through 16. This is why we constantly thank God because of you when we received the word of God that you heard from us. You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it is, it is truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from the people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. These are some strong words in this, this passage. He's going to encourage them. He's going to tell them why he's encouraged by them, but he's also going to leave them with a warning. All right. And uh, so there are three important truths for us today. We're going to talk about God speaks. God does speak. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that when, when he speaks, we must respond. We must respond to God's word. And we're going to talk about how the word transforms us. So God speaks. You know what? We believe in God, the creator of, of the heavens and the earth. And we believe that he, he gave us his word, uh, originally in the Old Testament to the Jews, looking forward to Christ Jesus. And then also he gave us his word through Christ Jesus. And Christ came as a picture of who God is. And then also we believe that he's given us the New Testament scriptures, what we would call the New Testament scriptures, his word on how we uh, live out this life of faith, live out our faith uh, that we claim to have uh, through Christ Jesus. And so when God speaks, he's going to speak to us. He's speaking, he's spoken a number of ways. Uh, when he speaks, it must have a purpose. There must be a purpose. When God speaks to us as humans, there must be a purpose. And Jesus gave us the purpose for the church. Uh, when he was about to ascend into heaven, he gave us the great commission, go out and make disciples. Well, what does it mean to make a disciple? Uh, teach him, train them about what we have heard, what we've seen, and uh, he also says in Matthew 16, he says this, after Peter has said, you are the Messiah, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Peter's given this claim. Jesus says this, and I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome. 
empower it. We believe that the church is grounded in a profession, Peter's confession, all right? Peter's confession. We're grounded in that confession of who Christ is. It's the, the church, where it's backed up by a promise. Okay, right? Peter's confession, Jesus' words, they're backed up by a promise that Jesus will be the one to build the church. All right? He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And it's, it's guaranteed to succeed. Jesus' words to us is that, that it is guaranteed what he has built up, what he has, he has established, what he has built is guaranteed to succeed and the gates of hell will not overcome. We may see it this way. The church is established on Jesus. It's being built by Jesus, and its future is guaranteed because of the work of Jesus. So God's proclamation, God's word to us, is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Paul comes in, he says to the Thessalonian church, man, we just gave it to you straight, all right? He says this also in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. This is the only thing that I was going to know among you, all right? This is the only thing I was going to preach, the only thing I was going to teach. I wasn't going to try to really jazz up the message. I, I came just preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. It came to you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power, on God's word, on making it God's doing. John MacArthur says this about preaching, and this is not just preaching for preachers. This is preaching when we share the word of the Lord. You go out into the streets and you share with your friends and neighbors the word of the Lord. You are preaching. You are preaching the message of Christ. And MacArthur says this about preaching. The preacher is not the chef. He's the waiter. Now, when you, when you go to a restaurant, the chef is the one who prepares the meal, right? He's the one who fixes the meal. The waiter usually doesn't fix the meal. The waiter is in, is in charge of delivering the meal to the customer. The, the waiter is in charge of answering questions about the meal for the customers. The waiters also, they may find themselves in a position of, of giving testimony about the meal to the customers. What Imagine if you were sitting in a restaurant, maybe you've never been there before, this is your first time at this restaurant, you ask the waiter, hey, you know, what is, what's really good here? What do you enjoy eating here? And the waiter says, yeah, no, I never, I would never eat at this place. You know, for, for the life of me, I would never eat here. I'd never dine here. I don't like anything on this menu. What is that waiter doing? You know, he, he's, he's, he's not delivering a message of life for that restaurant. He's actually taking away from that restaurant. The waiter is just there to to give the news, invite people into the meal. Uh, we are the same way. We're, we're inviting people into the banquet feast that God has prepared. And God is the one who has laid out the menu, given us the message to give. Well, the Bible is God's word. We, we firmly believe that the Bible is God's word. Uh, we believe that, that God used people like Paul to, to speak to these, these uh, the, uh, the, to the cities that he was going into, as well as like the other apostles and the other prophets. Uh, and we believe that God is the one who gives the message. God is the one who makes himself known. And ultimate, ultimately, the revelation about who God is comes through the person of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1 through 2. Today we're going to go through a lot of scripture. We're going to reference a lot of scripture. Write it down. Jot it down. 
for, uh, for reference later. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things, and he made the universe through him. God is speaking to us, has spoken to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the declaration that God has spoken through his Son, it has serious implications for everyone. All right, serious implications for everyone. C.S. Lewis famously said this, Christianity is a statement which, if false, has no importance, and if true, has infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. All right, it's either false, and we can cast it away, cast it aside just like every other uh, religious option out there, or true, and it means absolutely everything. It means life and death for us, but we can't leave it in the middle. We can't try to just pick apart what we don't like or what we like or whatever. We, we can't leave it in the middle as like, eh, it may be good, it may be bad, I'm not sure. It's either true or it's false, and we have to decide, we have to evaluate how we will see uh, the, the Jesus Christ and how we will see God's Word as well. When we speak about God's Word, we talk, we, we, there are a couple words that come to mind. Revelation, all right, God has spoken, he has revealed himself to us, and we call that in, in general revelation, like in creation, we look out the window and we see God's creation, and we say, oh man, look at that amazing work, you know, and we, we, we revel in it, we're, we're amazed by it, we want to study it, we want to dissect it, because we are, we are creatures uh, who, are, who are seeking after the Creator, right? And general revelation shows us that there is a God. Special revelation is what we call the scriptures, the written word of God. Uh, Psalms 19, Psalm 19 speaks to both of these. In verse 1, Psalm 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. They show God's glory. The expanse proclaims the works of his hands. Psalm 19.7 says this about special revolution, the writ revelation, the written word of God. The instructions of the Lord, they're perfect renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The, the special revelation, it, it uh, gives us wisdom on how to live our lives. General revelation declares that there is a God. Special revelation tells you how to know this God. Uh, Westminster Abbey, the assembly in 1646 says this about Scripture. They made this confessional statement that the churches they have signed off on. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or by traditions of men. That is what they penned about God's Word. It, it, it reveals everything necessary to see God's glory, to be introduced to God's glory. It tells us everything we need to know about our salvation, the salvation that we so desperately need. It tells us everything we need to know about faith and living a, a holy life. And everything about uh, this good life that we're living can be deduced, it says, from the Scripture. And nothing is to be added to it. Nothing is to be added to it, whether a new revelation from God or, or added traditions by man. So we see that 
uh, God's word is revealed to us. It's inspired. God's word is inspired. He inspired uh, men to, to pen these words, his words, so that they could be saved for us, so that we could all benefit uh, from uh, God's uh, direction and his wisdom. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The Holy Spirit moved the biblical writers through their own style, writings, and words to record uh, these words of God. Second Peter says this, Second Peter 1.21 says this, Because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Men spoke by the power of the Spirit. And they're, they're, they're people uh, who, who claim to be prophesying today, and, and I'm all for a, a good prophecy, but we have to weigh it against the words of Scripture. All right, we have to weigh it against the words of Scripture. One way we can judge prophecy is, does it actually come true? If it's a word for this present day, is it actually coming true? Is it actually being fulfilled? Is God working in that direction? And also, does Scripture support the idea that the word being spread? Or does it contradict Scripture? If it contradicts Scripture, then we know it's not a prophecy from the Lord. And again, it's... We, it's been revealed to us, it's been inspired by God, and uh, God has given us the ability to, uh, to understand His Word. And again, back to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has given us His Word so that we would be equipped to live this life as as Christ Jesus lived. It's, our, it's one of our examples of how to live this life, following the way, following the steps of Christ Jesus. So not only is the, the Bible God's word, but it's also God's word about Jesus. Now, when we think about the world around us, there are so many messages that are swirling around, all around us. Just think of commercials or ads and things like that. Uh, you go to the newspaper, you got messages galore. You go to the internet, you got a whole other set of messages being thrown at you. And, and these are some of the, the messages that we're, we're been, we've been given during our day. We're, we're going to hear messages about how, how corrupt the government can be. We've heard it on, on both sides of the aisle, how corrupt our government can be. We're going to hear uh, messages about how, how, uh, how this world is in trouble, either by war or by climate change or by drought or by famine. The world is in trouble. We're going to continue to hear about how divided we are as a people. But the, the question is, in, in all of that mess, in all of those messages, are we going to hear how good Jesus is? Are we going to hear the words about Christ, the one who has given us life? And just like Paul, we don't have to worry about um, clever messages or clever words. We just need to point to the one who has given us the words of life. Alistair Begg, a pastor, says this about the scriptures, about the whole canon of scripture, the whole collection of scriptures. He says this, We find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. He was, he's predicted. And it says in the Old Testament, he was predicted. 
people's eyes were, were drawn to a Savior. They were looking for a Savior. Uh, God had given them word about the Savior that would come. In, in Acts, or excuse me, in the Gospels, he's revealed. A man steps onto the scene who fulfills the criteria for all of those predictions. In Acts, he's preached. Lives were transformed by this man, Jesus Christ, that they couldn't help talking about him and what he had done and what he was all about. In the epistles, he says that he's explained, Jesus is explained, uh, because people became Jesus followers, they started to live a way that, that their, their lives were oriented toward the way that Jesus lived his life. And the, the scriptures further explain what it means to, to live as God's holy people. And in Revelation, he is expected. Jesus promised. Jesus made promises during his life. He, he promised that um, that a week would be invited into the kingdom of God. He promised that he would be raised from the dead after three days, which he fulfilled. He also promised that he would come back again to make all things new. And so we can hold on and we can expect to, that those promises will come to fruition. So the word is, is God's word. God speaks through his word. And one of the things that um, we know is people have to respond to that. Whether they accept it or whether they reject it, people always respond to God's word. Now, God's word, the scriptures are, are true and timeless. All right. Uh, again, back to Psalms, it says the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Isaiah 40 says this, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God remains forever. The word of God is true and timeless. The word of God is also trusted, trustworthy. We can trust it. And what's actually, I'm going to geek out for just a second here and, and take you back to some, to, to, um, to some other uh, writings from antiquity and compare that to the New Testament. The New Testament, uh, we have over 20,000 documents, manuscripts, uh, scraps of paper, uh, papyrus, all that kind of stuff, 20,000 pieces that, that directly uh, refer to uh, the New Testament teaching or pieces that, that are New Testament teaching. 20,000 documents, uh, copies of the New Testament, let's say. And what's uh, interesting is that the, the, um, the earliest writings we have are within 40 years of those original documents. So let's just take Thessalonians for an example. Paul writes Thessalonians and then within like 40 years, those are the copies we find of that. So, well, you may be thinking, well, that's, that's quite the span of time to, to be just looking at, at copies. Well, look, look at this. Look at this. Other writings in, in antiquity. All right. These are, these are writings that are trusted. We're, we're, scholars trust them. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the educational community trusts these writings. All right. In the, the 8th or 9th century BC, this is before Jesus, Homer writes his Iliad. There are 1,757 surviving copies. That's a lot of copies. I said the New Testament has 20,000 surviving uh, manuscripts and documents from the New Testament. This uh, Iliad has 1,757, all right? But the, the earliest copies that we have of the Iliad are about four, were written four centuries after the originals, all right? Four centuries, 400 years later, those are the copies we have of the Iliad. Whereas with the New Testament, the copies we have are starting 40 years after the writings, the original 
writings. Uh, Caesar's Gaelic Wars. All right, this was written in first century BC, you know, 100 years, right right before Jesus, time-wise, right before Jesus. All right, we have 20,000 copies of the New Testament, some form of, of New Testament writing and documents. Uh, we have 251 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars, copies, pieces, manuscripts of Caesar's Gallic Wars. The oldest, the, the, the earliest ones we have were written 950 years after the original. So you have the New Testament, and the earliest copies we have are written 40 years after the original documents. All right, 40 years. That's, that's, that's less than a lifetime. And here you have Caesar's Gallic, uh, Gallic Wars, and those were written 900. The copies we have were written 950 years after the original. The scriptures, the scriptures we have can be trusted as God's word, faithfully copied down through the generations, through generations. It's like it's like looking at a, a historical picture, uh, figure of our day. Think about George Washington. Imagine having a scrap of paper about George Washington and saying this is, we have to base our, our whole understanding of who George Washington was off this one little scrap of paper. And then you compare that to say, well, the life of Jesus, we have this stack that's this tall. This is what we have of Jesus against this one scrap of paper against of, of George Washington. Talk about evidence. Talk about trustworthy evidence of the person of Jesus Christ and therefore trustworthy evidence of the reliability of the scriptures. And not only can they be trusted and not only are they timeless, but the word of the Lord transforms us. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.23, Because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. We've been born again. We've been given new life. That means we need to walk in a new direction. And God's word guides us down the path of that new direction. Again, C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance but one thing it can't be is moderately important as we see that the word of god transforms us and the thessalonian church is an example of that here's the testimony of the thessalonian church from paul in verse 14 chapter 2 verse 14 for you brothers and sisters became imitators of god's churches in christ jesus that are in judea since you have also suffered the same thing from people of your own country just as they did from the jews the, he says we, we see your testimony. You are following in the example of the Judean church that came to Christ after hearing the gospel message. And not only that, you're following in their suffering. You're willing to step out in the same types of suffering that they experienced. And what happened with the Judean church is that as it was formed, well, people rose up. Uh, other people from the Jewish community rose up and said, no, you're, you're, you're preaching a wrong message. Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, is not the Lord. And they started to persecute them and pull them out of their homes and throw them in jail and stone them and beat them because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says this, you've become imitators of the God's churches in Jesus Christ that are in Judea. You've, you've recognized that you are God's people and you've associated yourself with God's people, not only in the joy of having this new life, but also in the suffering that the, the early Judean church was experiencing. You're not afraid to step into that suffering as well. And Paul is, is going to commend them 
on being imitators of the Judean church. Listen to that again. You become imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He's commending them for being imitators of the Judean church. Well, why would he do that? Because we've, we've over the last couple of book studies that we've done, we've seen that uh, the Jews from Judea have come up to these Gentile churches and, and twisted the gospel message in some way or, 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 or perverted it in some way. And Paul has had to do a lot of correction around that. But here he's con, uh, commending them for following in the footsteps of their brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Judea. Well, again, the Judean church was the first church that was formed after hearing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, after hearing the word of the Lord. And they began to face immediate, intense persecution. Paul himself was one of the ones who was coming and persecuting the early church until his own conversion. And then with Paul out of the picture, when Paul becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's out of the picture. The persecution continues for these early believers. And Jesus Jesus warned his followers that this would happen. He warned them in his gospel. Uh, we see this in the gospel of John 15, where he warns them about the coming persecution. So now we see the Thessalonian church is declaring their loyalty, loyalty to Jesus, and they themselves have taken on the mantle of being objects of hatred and persecution amongst their fellow citizens and brothers and sisters. And Paul commends them because they are willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. They, they no longer identify, identify with this world. They identify as um, God's people through Jesus Christ, and they're even willing to step into his suffering. So Jesus shows us that when we come, when we, when we uh, uh, follow God's word, that our affections change. All right. He shows us this. He, he showed us a great example in Luke 11, where the Pharisees were setting a trap for him, and he, they're looking to trap him so that they can, they can kill him. And, and he, he senses this. He knows this. He sees this. And the disciples are beginning to be afraid for their own safety. And Jesus tells them not to be afraid. Don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. All right? When they kill you, they can, can't do anything else to you. Indeed, the hairs on your head are counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And he tells them not to seek security in, in, in this passage here. He says, don't seek security in your own abilities. Don't seek security in the, in the money in your wallet. Don't seek security in how much food's in the pantry, how many, how many clothes you have in the closet. Don't seek security in how big your bank account is. Jesus wants his disciples to recognize that the affections of God's people are, are strikingly different from the world around him. Those are the things that the world worries about. He says, no, as, as my followers, those are the things that you don't have to worry about. And God gives us his word on that. The Judean followers were being told that, that the law was their savior. And here the church is saying that, no, Jesus is our savior. Everyone else around them was crying that Caesar is Lord. And the, the church and the Thessalonian church included is crying, that, crying out that Jesus is Lord. Not, not only does the word transform our affections and we become Jesus people, Jesus followers, the word transforms, the word of God transforms our direction, the direction that we're walking in. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16, that the Jews are the ones who killed the Lord Jesus 
and the prophets, and they persecuted us as well. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they're constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. Paul, Paul is ending this, and he's not mincing words um, for those brothers and sisters who have denied Christ and who have even persecuted and brought pain to Christ's church. And, you know, we have to take Paul's words in, in a larger context. The, these words, if, if take, taken just on their own, which they have in, in uh, history past, have, have gone after, have allowed people to go after the Jewish people, to go after God's people. But we have to take this in a larger view of the Jewish people. And uh, Paul does this in Romans 9 through 11. And uh, he recognizes that, that, you know what? He says, my brothers and sisters, my, my fellow countrymen, we are the ones who killed Jesus Christ and also the prophets. But not only that, he doesn't, he doesn't just, just recognize that and just condemn them on that. He says that, that, that he longs for their salvation. He longs for their redemption. He longs for their eyes to be opened up so that they realize and they, they see the true picture of who Jesus Christ is. Paul says that he knows that his people were privileged to have Jesus Christ walk amongst them, their Savior walk amongst them. All right, And with that great privilege comes great responsibility. And he's saying that we've missed that. There are, there are people within my tribe and my community, and we've missed that. It's like everyone else, you know, we're all sitting in the dark. Uh, the, the, the Jewish folks were sitting in the dark with us. All right, but they had a glimpse of the light coming through a crack in the wall. They, they could see the light, and instead of exploring where this light was coming from or what this light means for them, they just patched up the wall to cover up the light to remain in the darkness like everyone else. And like everyone, those who don't walk in the light will face judgment. And here we see Paul has some harsh words for his brothers and sisters, uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters. But there's also a glimmer of hope. He used to be like them. And then he saw the light of Jesus Christ and began to walk in that light. And there is hope in that. And he sees that the Thessalonian church has welcomed in the light that comes from Jesus Christ. He recognizes that the word became flesh to give life for people like Paul and for like his brothers and sisters who are now in the position of, of condemning. But there is still a chance that anybody, the message of Jesus Christ is for everybody, everybody. And the Thessalonian church is a great example of that because they experienced the same light as Paul and they became imitators as Paul and they became imitators of Christ Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, very familiar verse, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What a great promise. What a great word. But I'll remind you, bring up this quote again by D.A. Carson. This is often the case, I think, especially for a Western-minded church like us, a rational people like like us in the West. He says, D.A. Carson says this, to our shame, we have hungered to be masters of the word, to, to dive into its depths, to try to un, uh, understand it, to, to, to splice it, 
to pull it apart, to put it back together, to dissect it, to study it. We're, we're masters. We want to be masters of the word. But we have not been masters, or, or excuse me, we have not uh, let it uh, master us. We're hungered to be masters of the word much more than we have hungered to be mastered by the word. And the Thessalonian church proved that they were hungry to not only master the word and understand the word, but also to have it master their own lives, to be transformed by it. And the word of the Lord transforms us. They accepted the message that Jesus gave up his life so that, that you and I could live. This is the gospel. This is God's word. And so we must recognize the, the origin of the word. The, the Bible is the word of God. There's no higher court of appeal than the scriptures, and it's trusted, it's timeless, and it's true, and it points us to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that scarlet thread that is woven throughout the word of the Lord, throughout the scriptures. And the word works effectively in the lives of those who submit to its authority and follow its instructions. It's one thing to recognize what it is. It's, it's one thing to recognize what the word of the Lord is. It's another thing to submit our lives uh, to the, the kingdom lifestyle that is spelled out in its pages. Again, I'll close with this quote. C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. Let's throw it away. Let's stop meeting. It doesn't really matter. If it's false, it, it means nothing. And if true, it's of infinite importance. It means life and death, literally life and death for us. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And so how are we doing with God's word? Are, are, we, are we looking to be masters of the word? Are we looking for the word to be masters of our, the master of our lives and, and giving us encouragement and giving us correction in, in, in challenging us and helping us grow in our relationship with the Lord? God, we come to you today and, and we have to be amazed at how you have communicated with us through the prophets, through the apostles, through your written word, through the person of Jesus Christ, your, your son. We have to be amazed by, by how you have desired to, to draw us in as your people, to bring us into your family. I pray, Lord, that, that we would have a high view of the scriptures. They are our guiding principle given from you, given directly from you, in order that we can live holy lives pleasing and acceptable to you. Uh, knowing scripture does not save us. The work of Jesus Christ saves us. The scriptures help to transform us and give us direction and guidance and comfort and peace in our lives. Pray, Lord, that we would lean into that, that we would be a people who not only know things about your word, but, but let, that, that let your word transform our lives completely. As we come in Jesus' name, amen.